0: You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. The last podcast I released, I made a statement at the beginning about just kind of apologizing to all of you for being less frequent with these. And some of you got back to me and and were very kind. Uh, One person wrote and said, you know, hey, we get it. Do what you can. Thank you. And don't release bad podcasts. (laughs) Like we'd rather have fewer and have them be good that have more regular ones and have to sort through the good from the bad. I appreciate that. I kind of feel the same way. Things have changed here a lot at Strong Towns. In fact, today we just hired our 20th person, which if you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, that's an insane number, right? (laughs) I mean, long ago, this organization was me. That's it. Our strategic plan that kind of... Changed everything. The board that we have now that we brought in and the planning work that that board did and the direction that we embarked on in 2014, 2015, you know, that was the turning point where we brought in a couple more staff. We started to kind of change what we were doing. From that point to here is literally like crazy. Like, I, in my wildest dreams, would not have imagined that we would be here. The interesting thing about where I'm at right now is that I'm doing a lot of, I think what you just call management, management and, you know, strategic planning, like visioning kind of stuff, right? All of a sudden Strong Towns is not just me writing a blog, me doing a podcast and and other people trying to, you know, distribute that message. It is a, a lot of different writers, a lot of different voices. We have columnists, we have uh, writing staff. We have a whole team of people who are distributing this message to literally millions of people. It's not just me out giving talks anymore. There's a whole group of people who travel around the country, meeting with people, meeting with local conversations, giving you know different lectures and workshops and and different things. It's really kind of crazy and it's fun. It's wonderful. I love it, but I do miss this, right? I miss this. It is like an intimate conversation. And it forces me when I sit down and do this to think through things in a way that, you know, not doing it doesn't provide, it's like a muscle that gets stretched. And when I'm not doing these podcasts, I'm not stretching that muscle. And I can tell those of you that exercise and I'm not going to claim, I mean, let's say I do a little bit. My wife is the exercise person. She'll say, you know, if she goes like two or three days and hasn't gone for a run or gone to the, the Y and, and done, um, you know, one of the morning programs or what have you, she will, she will start to get a little crazy. Let's be nice. Um, you know, she'll start to get a little pen- like I need to go do this. Like, I feel this, like I need to go. And I feel that way about writing. I feel that way about podcasting. I feel that way about communicating in this way when I don't do it for a while, there just gets like too many things backed up in the brain. I need to get out. And so I've been pondering a little bit in my brain, what this podcast looks like in the future. I mean, up to this point, and let's be honest with each other here, this podcast has been me, right? It's been like what I'm interested in. We have people who pitch podcast ideas all the time and I rarely do them. Even internally here, we'll have people say, oh, Chuck, this person would be great on a podcast. And if it doesn't like capture me or motivate me or, or interest me, I'm just like, uh, you know, okay, great. Go do that yourself. (laughs) You know? So the guests that we have on tend to be guests that I, for one reason or another find very interesting, either I find their book interesting or their work interesting. It is rarely, rarely a person that we've had on, you know, because I was asked or because we think it would be a, a good thing to do. When I do monologue podcasts, it's generally because I have something in my brain that I want to get out. I have something in my brain that I want to kind of talk through and share. When I'm out doing public lectures and speaking events, my favorite part, quite frankly, is the Q&A. Like for me, presenting is kind of, you know, whatever. I've, I've described it as theater. Like I've done so many presentations. It's fun when I get to do new things, right? Like new ideas, um, I enjoy when people invite me to come speak and say, hey, we'd like you to talk about this topic that is a little bit different than what you've talked about before. I I like doing that. But I love, love, love Q&A. And I especially love smart Q&A, right? Like where people really push me. I, I did a Q&A a couple of weeks ago in Orlando with a group of young professionals. And, you know, they asked different questions. And it was so much fun. It was just... It was fast. It was uh, intellectual. It was interesting. It was interactive. It was a it was a really good time. I like this podcast to be that too, and at its best, that that's what it is. When I am doing all these other things, it is hard for me to sit down and do this. And so, I apologize for you, and by way of explanation, and just kind of telling you what's going on hear what's going on in my life in terms of our movement, in terms of strong towns, the movement, strong towns, this set of ideas, my gosh, things are on like uh, power drive, right? Like to the moon. So we are succeeding. And if we are succeeding means I have a little less peace in coming here and, and chatting with you. I have a little less time to explore ideas with people. You know, I'm 50. I'll get to a point in my life where I have plenty of time to do those things. I'm doing what I'm kind of being called to do right now. I don't want to say that this is a back burner thing, but in reality, like it has become a little bit of a back burner thing. I'm trying not to do it that way, but we'll see. I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about. I say tonight. I have no clue when you're listening to this. I am here at the office at. Oh, it is. Let me look up at the clock. 11:45 p.m. I'm a late night person, but I I just came in tonight because I uh, wanted to do this before I checked out for the evening and I'm drinking a Mountain Dew. Hang on. It's a Diet Mountain Dew, which I found out has aspartame. I'm sure that I knew that somewhere in my head, but you know, it's been in the news lately. Every time I talk about drinking Diet Mountain Dew, I get this litany of, of people who are not so generous to me saying, Chuck, how dare you? Look, friends, I don't have many vices. That's the one right? Okay. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about the, uh, the community action lab. And, and one of the interactions that we had in that, this is another reason why I'm, I'm a little stretched thin this year. We took on this new program called the community action lab. And, uh, if you don't know what this is, let me try to explain it like briefly. We have had a lot of people contact us over the years and say, come here and, you know, wave your magic wand and speak an incantation and change the entire direction of my community. And it's like, it, it doesn't work that way, right? Like it, it, it doesn't work that way. But we've had a number of places that were very serious about this saying we really are buying into what you're talking about. We really think the strong towns approach has some important deep insights We want to do things differently. We want our community to think about these things differently. And we want you to come here and engage with us in this very sophisticated way. And so we, after being prodded by a number of places, launched this program last year called the Community Action Lab. We invited cities to apply, places to apply. We ultimately wound up working with four of them. Uh, Lake County, Florida, which is a county just west of uh, Orlando. Norman, Oklahoma, which is a college town just outside of Oklahoma City. Medicine Hat, Alberta, uh, which is a, a city kind of in the middle. It, it's north of Montana. It's in the middle of like the the plains of, of Canada. Gosh, I like that place. I like all of them for different reasons, but um, Medicine Hat is kind of... Got me motivated in a lot of ways. Beautiful people. And then Chisholm, Minnesota, a small town a couple hours north of where I live. These four places we have been working with throughout this year. And by working with them, I mean we've gone there and done events on the ground, like multi-day, intense, multiple meetings, public events, public engagements, multiple people from our staff, our team there doing different things. We have been spending money every month doing online marketing and engagement, um, sharing social media posts and and other things with people to get them introduced to Strong Towns in in a broad sense, inviting them into this deeper conversation. Uh, We have been training an action team in every city, a team of people who bring us their problems and their challenges, and then we help them kind of reimagine them or re-understand them through a Strongtown's lens and adapt to them in a, a Strongtown's way. And in that process of doing that, we've created what in a sense is a curriculum for the public to apply Strongtown's principles to their community. You, you can find all this if you're interested On our Strong Towns Academy site, academy.strongtowns.org, there's a little place to click on Community Action Lab. So in one of these events, I wind up, you know, as part of our team going to these places and interacting with local officials, with staff, with members of the public, in sessions really big and sessions very small and intimate and having a lot of like ongoing dialogue. And most of this, almost all of it is amazing. It's really, really good. It's exciting. It's fun. It is really powerful to watch the light bulb come on with people and then have them come back the next day, having kind of thought through things. It's great to get there and have people been immersed in this in a few months. And then they have like the, like Chuck, I've been thinking about this and I have this question that I can't get through the, this is so like fulfilling, fulfilling, right? It's really great work, by the way, just as a side tangent, in terms of the larger movement, the larger strong towns movement, this program originally felt like a distraction, like we were not going to do this. I I resisted doing this for a couple of years. Like there's no way we're not going to do this program. Like this is, this is a distraction from what we do well. Uh, What we realized is that people need examples. And so one of the things that we are designing along with this program is, in a sense, telling the story of these places as they kind of emerge from this what we've called full contact, <laughs> a full contact sport kind of interaction. And so I'm looking forward to sharing some of the things that we've learned, some of the, the, the trials that places have gone through, some of the struggles they've had and, and how they're dealing with some of the issues that have been brought up. If we work with four cities, it, it doesn't do anything, right? I mean, like we could affect four places, but like, who cares? That doesn't scale our whole model is designed to scale. I mean, that's why we start with media. We start with messaging. And so the idea here is that we want to take our content machine that we have created and take the good work that is being done in these places and share out those stories with people so that we can inspire other communities to do similar things. We can give um, models and examples and, and case studies and testimonials and and places where people struggled and perhaps even connect people to mentors in other places so that the stuff that we do on the ground in a place winds up affecting not just that place, but many, many, many more. That's the, that's the plan. This has been a full contact sport. I said that earlier. That's the term we've kind of been using internally. And it's been a full contact sport in a way that I will say I'm not shocked about, but is exercising some muscles that I haven't exercised in a while. I wanna say this in a way that is not condescending because I really I'm watching all of these places work really hard and struggle with uh, some things that other places aren't struggling with and and doing it in heroic ways. I mean, ways that I find absolutely heroic. We had one planner in one of these communities say in a, in a public meeting in front of a whole bunch of people, I have completely changed what I think my entire job is. And that is a astounding change. I was in awe of not only the kind of public acknowledgement, but just the, the intellectual distance traveled in this period of time. It, it, was, it was beautiful, it was humbling, and I was amazed by it. These are the kind of things that are going on, and it's, it's really fantastic. But it has also brought back some of the things that I experienced in my consulting days that I have to say I, I've been long away from. So I graduated from the University of Minnesota in 1995 with a civil engineering degree, and I went to work for an engineering firm, a consulting firm. In the early years, I did a lot of project inspections. I did a lot of drafting. I was the the new guy. They weren't sending me out to places. But I was pretty good at that part of it. And so pretty soon, I wound up doing a lot of project management, a lot of client relations. And by the time I left in 2000, I had been out working with cities fairly intimately in a way where you're meeting with a lot of public officials, a lot of the public, uh, what have you? I went back to graduate school and I got a degree in urban and regional planning. I got a master's degree from again from the University of Minnesota. And and while I was there, I wound up not setting out to start my own planning firm, but that is essentially what happened. Cities started to call me that I had worked with, and pretty soon I was employing some of my classmates and. By the time I got done I had hired 3 people and you know was working with dozens of cities around the state. There was a huge demand for the kind of work that I was doing which was a lot of small town planning assistance. The one thing though that you you run into in situations like this when you are a consultant is that you run into this conundrum where you're delivering a message that People don't necessarily want to hear. And one of the things you have to worry about, or you have to address is, do I want to deliver this message or do I want to starve? <laughs> or do I want to deliver this message or do I want to eat? Maybe it's the bet. Yeah. Because if you deliver the message, you get fired or they don't want you back. And this actually became a problem with me. You know, I was a, an okay consultant. People liked me. But there were many, many situations, and I wrote about a couple in my in my first book, Strong Towns of Bottom of Revolution, you know, where I would be in a position where I would tactfully try to deliver a message. Sometimes not so tactfully. I had I had one meeting where my colleague said, I can't believe you just yelled at our client for half an hour. And I don't think I yelled, but I certainly was like, What do you think's gonna happen here if we do this? Like, how does this play itself out? So there's this conundrum in the consulting world where you are going to places. Let's take, I live in Brainerd, Minnesota. I live in central Minnesota. There's a finite number of places I can work with in driving distance from here. And I drove a lot to do this work, right? There's a finite number of places. And if you get fired from a handful of them, you're not working at any of them. There's a pressure that builds up to be the person that people want. And when you're in a high-growth place, like I was, where there's a lot, you know, everyone's like, hey, the sun is shining here. Come and do development. It's great. And your job is to come in and help them do this development. When you tell them, this is a really dumb idea. You shouldn't be doing this. They they, they really don't want to hear it. It was tough. When I started Strong Towns, and, and I'll say, I started writing this blog as kind of like therapy <laughs> for me because I, I doing this work, you know, require me to make some compromises in what I thought should be done and what my clients wanted to do. And I I worked for the clients. They were the decision makers. I found a lot of clarity in writing and in explaining things. And if you go back and read those early things, you you see a, a, a very angry engineer planner writing about his frustrations. You'll note, I don't write about any of the cities that I worked in. And if I do, I didn't write about them in ways that they would be discernible from other places. Like I, I was trying to figure things out in my brain. I was trying to uh, have a dialogue with other professionals. I was not trying to get fired. But when Strong Towns started to take off and I started to get invited places, what I found right away is that I basically, by being able to jump on a plane and fly anywhere, and I've now presented strong towns ideas in every single US state except Alaska which come on Alaska let's go i thought we might be coming to Alaska this year maybe i know it's in the it's been in the works for like 2 years and it's not worked out yet but we'll get there i promise the cool thing about going where you're asked is that you 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 don't have to worry about what you're going to say like you don't have to worry about getting fired when places like come here and talk to us about this I can come here and talk to you about that. And I'm from Minnesota. I'm not like an agitator. I don't go in to try to make people mad. If I think I'm going to make people mad, I've, I've, I'm pretty good at couching things and, and delivering a spoonful of sugar, right? Like I'm, I'm not a coarse personality. But boy, is it liberating to be able to go to a place and just say what you think. This Community Action Lab stuff has brought me back to the old days of kind of the consulting relationship. And now that we have a consulting relationship, I mean, we are, we have been very, very clear, like we are not consultants and you know, all the materials we gave these places when we started is like, we are not consultants. We are not consulting with you. In fact, the last round of conversations we've taken to describing our coaching and contrasting that with uh, an intervention, An intervention, you know, someone who has a substance abuse problem and you bring them into a room and you sit them down and you have an intervention where you tell them you have to make a change. You do not want to change, but you have to do this. And like, we're going to walk you out to the car and put you in rehab and you're going to do this. That's an, that's an intervention. That is not what we're doing here. We're doing something called like coaching. And, and I describe this as like a life coach, a life coach you go to and you say, I have this problem. I want to get better. Help me get through this. Help me figure this out. Walk me through this, be there to help me. And, and I've looked at that as our role. I feel like a life coach can be honest with you, right? Like the life coach does not have to pull punches. They may have to you know, be tactful in the way that they motivate you, but it's not an intervention, right? It's not like you do not want to do this. I'm going to force you to do it. It's like, you want to do this. I want you to do this too. I want to help you do this. And sometimes that means, you know, you're going to snack on a cookie when you're trying to lose weight, because we're trying to get you to the, the next plateau here of understanding. Like I get that. And I understand that. The part that's been jarring to me is to have People step up and basically say, like, I'm not with the program. <laughs> I'm not with the program. This feels like an intervention. and I don't want an intervention. And in particular, we had one interaction last month that was, it was bizarre to me in a way where I walked out of the room and I just like, I, I need some time alone. I- I'm going to take a walk here. And I just need some time alone to process this because I'm, I am mad. The emotion that I'm feeling right now is anger. And I don't want to feel this emotion. I, I need to go figure out like why I'm angry. So I'm going to explain to you what happened. I'm going to tell you why I was angry. And then you can tell me that I was wrong. That's fine. So in all the communities we've worked with, we've had this conversation about do cities need to run a profit? And this is always a, I realize it's a provocative framing, right? And people struggle with it because their gut reaction is like gosh no, like run a profit? That's that's horrible. How can you even suggest that cities should run a profit? Gross, yuck. Like who are you? And then we walk them through what what a profit is. Because We're clearly not saying cities should maximize profit and cities should seek to, you know, call as much money out of the populace as they can so that their coffers can be full. That's not what running a profit is. A profit in very simple accounting terms is that you have to have revenue that's greater than your expenses. And so, yes, Walmart has to run a profit. And if Walmart doesn't run a profit, Walmart goes away. Like we get that, right? But we also understand that if like a dog shelter or an orphanage, or you know some place that helps battered women, these places are all doing things of tremendous public good, right? If these places don 't run a profit, what happens to them they They go away, they cease to exist and so if you're if your battered women 's shelter doesn 't bring in more revenue in a year than they have expense, something 's got to give, something has to change. And you might be able to get away with that for a year or two, but at some point it catches up to you and you go away or you do worse service. You you do less than what you otherwise should. That's what it means to run a, a profit. Cities have to run a profit. And cities not only have to run a profit just in terms of like cash, like, like cash budgeting. We're, I need to do a podcast at some point on budgeting because in all of these places, budgeting is the Achilles heel, right? Like every place has horrible accounting and it's horrible accounting, not because they're incompetent. It's because government accounting is horrible. It is cash accounting. It is the most distorting kind of record keeping you can have for an endeavor of, of this size and scope. But nonetheless cities must run a profit and that profit has to not only be this current budget, like we balance this budget, But the liabilities we take on long-term has to be matched by the assets we accumulate long-term. So if we're going to build a mile of road with millions of dollars of liability, we better add enough tax base to actually sustain that, or we are going to go insolvent. We are going to be broke. And here's the big kicker. If Walmart goes broke, what happens? Walmart goes away and you buy your toilet paper somewhere else. If the battered women's shelter or the dog uh, shelter or the orphanage goes broke, people are going to get hurt, right? Those services are going to not be done, but someone will come in and pick up the shreds of that and try to do something, right? Like if one battered women's shelter goes away, if the demand is there, hopefully another one will be reestablished and whoever runs that one will be more competent be able to, to manage it and have it run a profit and then be able to do good with that platform for people. So there's a, a mechanism in a sense to replace the failure with something that could be successful. But if your city goes broke, what happens, right? If the city goes broke, what happens? It lingers on. It fails. It fails to do the important things that we expect cities to do whether that is collect the garbage or provide you with public safety or get you clean drinking water. You know, we had a discussion earlier this year about Jackson, Mississippi. When cities go broke, when cities do not run a profit, and when they do that too many years in a row, what we see is that cities become grossly ineffective and lots and lots of people suffer. So this is the dialogue we've had with all these places. Like running a profit is a prerequisite to doing good. That's one of the uh, kind of tenets of Strong Downs is that, you know, fiscal solvency for a municipality is a prerequisite to doing good. You cannot ignore the math. You cannot wish the math away. You cannot be fiscally irresponsible and run, you know, do good things over the long term. You can do good things today. You can sacrifice tomorrow to do something you think is good today or in the public good today. But if you don't take care of the long-term budget, eventually what is going to happen is a lot of bad things are going to happen to people who don't deserve those bad things to happen to them in any way. This is what we need to avoid. And so when we're talking to these communities, this is the framing that we're bringing to the table is that we all want to do good. We can define good in different ways, but in order for us to do good, however you want to define that, we have to be fiscally solvent. We have to run a profit year after year. And by the way, no city in North America is running a profit year after year. We are all fiscally insolvent. And so getting to the crux of that, getting to what that means and helping them struggle with the implications of that is really, really important. I had an individual, and I'm not going to... I guess I will say it was a guy. I'm not going to go beyond that because I, I really am, don't want to use this podcast and this forum to debate people who are defenseless and can't debate. Like I'm not trying to throw this person on the bus or shame them or what have you, but I want to share with you my my frustration because I was like hot. I was like angry. We had someone stand up and it was someone of importance who is involved in managing day-to-day affairs of a city stand up and say chuck i am deeply offended by this entire project by the entire framing that strong towns has brought to the table you talk about running a profit and cities need to run a profit and that is just plain wrong This gentleman went on to say then, and I I wrote this down afterwards because I, I wanted to remember it. I wanted to let it marinate in my brain. He said, cities are for doing things that nobody else can do. Cities are meant to take the loss. They're meant to be there and take the loss when other people can't. We should not be worrying as cities about our return on investment. That is not our job. Our job is to provide the services that other people can't provide okay, I want to talk about this because kind of going back to my consulting days, I remember working for this one city, I'm going to say city of Becker in Minnesota. I was doing this project with them and it was a, it was a great project. It was paid for by a nonprofit from a foundation. We were supposed to be out doing innovative things, helping them work on stuff. I was doing basically like pre strong towns kind of things with them looking at their road budget, uh, had gone through this whole thing where, and this was not the city of Becker, it was Becker Township in Minnesota. And we got to the point where I pretty much had them clearly understanding in a leadership standpoint, clearly understanding that they had about 25 cents on the dollar of what they needed to maintain all their roadways. And at the end of this one meeting that I thought going in would be like the meeting where we agreed that we were going to change the approach to development so that this problem didn't get any worse. And we were going to change our approach to road design so that we could narrow this gap. And we were going to do some like fiscally prudent things to have this make sense and work out. One of the township managers said, well, we're just going to borrow the money. And I know the look on my face was like astonishment. Like what, what the, F, are you talking about? You're just going to borrow the money, right? We're just going to borrow the money. And I realized that that's just buying us time, but it's going to be someone else's problem to worry about 20 or 30 years from now. It's not going to be our problem. And I'm confident that they'll figure it out then. And it was at that point that I walked out of that meeting and I'm like, I I don't, I don't want to be working here anymore. Like I don't want to work with these people it was to me like, yeah, I know we got to kill some babies, like, but, you know, we'll be better off today if we do. And I, I realized that that's not what they said. But to me, it was like akin to, I don't care about the future at all. And my brain just couldn't process that. Like I didn't, it bothered me so bad that I walked out of there. In one of these community action labs, this was the same kind of response. And as I engaged with, this individual, he made this argument. And it's an argument that I have heard derivations of a few times. So let me, let me start out with the first quote that I've got here. Cities are for doing things nobody else can do. I want to start with that one because I actually agree with that statement, right? I actually agree with that statement. Cities are for doing things that nobody else can do. At Strong Towns, one of our core principles, we have six of them, one of them is that cities are, and gosh, I'm gonna do this for memory because I don't have it exactly in front of me how it's written down, but essentially cities are the highest form of coordination in a community, uh, not the lowest form of government in a food chain of governments. That's pretty good, I think that's pretty close. Cities are the highest form of coordination in a community, not the lowest form of government in a food chain of governments. This is the way we view local government here at strong towns, right? Like it is the highest form of coordination. So sure. You can have a volunteer bucket brigade in your city. And if a building catches on fire, you can call out people and say, Hey, everybody show up and we'll all show up and we'll all bring buckets and we'll try to put out this fire. Right. Or You can have a private fire department that people pay into voluntarily, but really, if you look at that, like, I mean, you know, maybe libertarians would love that. I don't know any place that has ever done that because it's like wholly impractical, right? You've got the free rider problem. Are you going to just sit and watch a house burn when it goes up? Are you going to let people die? Are you going to go in and save them and then charge them after the fact? What's the mechanism for doing that? Are you gonna let a place burn and then have it burn down the place next door? So what has happened is that the fire problem became one that we can't deal with without some type of coordination amongst people living in a community, ergo a government of some sort, a municipal government. And so fire protection has become like one of the base things that a municipal government does. And we get that. It's a highest form of coordination Amongst us, we are going to join together and have a municipal fire department because that is the only real way that we're going to be able to do this effectively. That makes a lot of sense. No individual can have their own fire protection. And so when when this gentleman says cities are for doing things that nobody else can do, I agree with that. Like, I agree. It's the highest level of coordination. But he followed that up with this kind of related observation that just drove me nuts. And I got to say, like, I don't even get it. It was so offensive to me, like bizarre to me. He said, cities are meant to take the loss. Now, let's try to put this in a context where it makes sense. And then I'm going to give you the context that it was given in because it's worse than the one that makes sense. So if we go to the fire department example, Cities are not supposed to make a profit on their fire department. You don't run a fire department at city. Like we are all going to get together. We're coordinate, We're going to create a fire department. And then the way the fire department is going to have revenue is that when there's a fire, they're going to charge people for that. And if they got to go out with jaws of life, they're going to charge people for that. And if they got to go get a cat out of a tree, they're going to charge someone for that. And they're not only going to charge the cost, but they're going to charge extra and make a profit like that. That doesn't make any sense. And so on a pure like rote service standpoint, the city will take a loss on providing fire protection. Fire protection is a net loss for the city. Every time they got to go out and do a fire call, there's no revenue associated with that. They're going to lose money on it. But securing the tax base and having a tax base to fund the fire department is the way that you ensure that you have revenue. And when we look at a fire department, we can all like recognize, you know, here, everybody here listening to this can recognize that if we have a fire truck and we have four square blocks that has a water tower and water pipes in the ground and good water pressure, that we can respond to fires in that four block area in a reasonable way. But if we expand our city to be 36 square miles and we run pipe all over and our houses are spread all over and we have to have multiple stations, um, but we're not collecting any more revenue than we were in those four blocks. Um, we are not going to be able to provide that fire protection for very long. And so there is a certain amount of balancing between the cost of providing this service and the amount of tax base and capacity that the community has. These are things we can measure These are things we can budget. These are things we can look at and recognize when it comes to fire protection. uh, One of the more insidious things that I see over and over and over is cities saying, we'll provide, we'll, we'll sign a contract with like the neighboring place to provide fire service over there. And when they do it, they generally do it at a loss. I watch this happen all the time because it allows you to buy a bigger fire truck or employ a few more people. And These are like bizarre things, right? Like sure, provide the service, but don't provide it at a loss. Don't like diminish your service or raise taxes on your own taxpayers to fund, you know, bigger toys for the fire department. I don't mean to offend people with that, but like literally that's, I've seen that over and over and over again. So when we say, you know, that government is for doing the things that nobody else can do, and then we join it with, they're meant to take the loss, They're meant to do things that you can't do at a profit, but they're not meant to do it with an annual loss of revenue. The city has a budget and the city's budget cannot be at a loss. And so the statement is absurd. Let let me give you the context the statement was in, however, because we weren't talking about fire service in this meeting. We were talking about growth and development. We were talking about the government going out and building arterial roads and building sewer and water systems and building massive highways and interchanges and bridges and drainage systems so that developers could come in and, you know, make money off of the next greenfield development. And the idea there was that we need the growth, we need the investment, and government has to be the one to take the loss on these kind of communal things so that the market can come in and do profitably the rest. I was kind of at a loss for words. Like, I I don't even know how you run a city with that mindset. It was just bizarre. The third statement I wrote down here is, we should not worry about return on investment. That's not our job. I'm going to take a a drink here before I respond to that. because I, (laughs) Again, I'm getting worked up. We should not worry about return on investment. That's not our job. Then what is your job? If your job as City Hall is just to mindlessly provide services, everywhere a service is needed, you go out and provide it. Just balance the budget this year. We don't care about next year. We don't care about the year after. We don't care about the decade from now. Those things will take care of themselves. Just go out and do it. Provide that service. That's the humane thing to do. That's the moral thing to do. That's the reasonable thing to do. That's the pro-growth thing to do. This is a bizarre world. Let me make an observation. This is the world that a lot of governments operate in. It really is. And that's the reason why I'm here talking to you about this tonight and not, you know, just walking away and and letting this pass. It's because this is the template and the framework that a lot of our governments operate in. Cities are for doing things that nobody else can do. If you are a progressive minded person who believes in a very active government, doing lots of good for lots of people, it is rare that I have worked with that type of mentality at a local level where they will feel inhibited by the budget, right? The budget is something that is malleable. Go figure it out. Balance this budget. I need the money to do this. That is what is good and decent and moral. Go do it. And and let me say, I understand the motivation for that, and I'm not trying to disrespect it. But I I do struggle with the methodology. I have worked with many people who are right of center, um, people who come across as very pro-growth, pro-business. That's very much the mindset of this person that I was dealing with. In this community action lab, very pro-growth and pro-business, their whole approach was, we got to go out and make things happen. It's not our deal to worry about the budget. If we're growing, things will take care of itself. This, again, is like reckless and irresponsible. It was Charlie LaDuff who is a, a journalist in Detroit, kind of a... I don't wanna say gonzo journalist because I I think that's probably selling him short and maybe creating an image that uh, is unfair. One of the things that Charlie LeDuff did is he did this golf across Detroit. He started on one side of Detroit and golfed all the way to the other, just taking shot after shot after shot and brought a film crew along with him to kind of shoot the landscape. And it sounds so cheesy, so dumb, right? Like here's this guy out there with a golf club, not dressed like a golfer, right? Like just dressed like a like a reporter would dress, <laughs> kind of like a, a dude, you know, out hitting this golf ball around. It was one of the most emotionally draining things I've ever watched. It was like 15 minutes. And it was emotionally draining because you saw this landscape of Detroit and what people lived in and what they were going through. And it was it was just stunning. And I remember Charlie LeDuff saying in the, that interview or in a subsequent interview, he, he said, we got to take care of the money. All these things are so important, but if we don't take care of the money, our kids don't have a chance. Now, I'm not up here trying to pull out your heartstrings and say, you know, do it for the children. But I am saying that go through the list of whatever it is that's important to you whatever it is that you think a city is supposed to be, whatever you think that it is that a city is supposed to do and accomplish, just hold that in your mind for a second. I don't know what it is. Everybody's thing is going to be a little bit different. A prerequisite for doing that thing and doing it well, doing it earnestly, doing it seriously, doing it with meaning over the long term, a prerequisite to that is that you take care of the money. A prerequisite for that is that you actually have balanced, not a balanced budget, but books that run a profit year after year after year, liabilities that are less than your assets, cash flow that is less than your outflow, right? It's a prerequisite to doing all of those things. Whatever it is you hold in your mind that you think the role of government is, that local government should be doing, in order for that to happen, you have to take care of the money. And if you don't take care of the money, if you're not prudent with the money, if you're not actually making good investments, if you, if you, you know, cities are meant to take the loss. No, they're not. Cities are meant to run, be run prudently. We should not worry about ROI. Yes, you have to worry about ROI. You have to worry about your return on investment. It's not our job. Yes, it is your job. Because if you don't do those things, your city will go broke. Your city will raise taxes. Your cities will cut services. And your city will find this place where it cannot meet its obligations, where it cannot do the things that it needs to do, where it cannot do that thing that you have in your brain that is what a city is supposed to do. It will be incapable of doing that. I think it's important to note just to step back and and recognize that there are a lot of places out there today with really, really conscientious people doing heartfelt things that they believe are right and righteous and, and in the best interests of the people in their community. These are good people trying to do good work. They are stuck in a system that not only lacks transparency and I don't mean transparency like people are hiding things. I mean like transparency, like the system uh, does not reveal the insolvencies, right? But they're not struggling deeply with what that means. This is the Strong Towns project. A lot of times people say, well, you know, what is Strong Towns? And it, it's fascinating because I, I our, our movement has gotten so big and there's so many voices out there talking about things. And I, I will hear people say like, you know, Strong Towns is about... Walkable streets—it's about safe streets, and yes, like we're about walkable neighborhoods. But why? Because walkable neighborhoods are actually, fiscally, you know, very productive. Walkable neighborhoods are generally the kind of places that work out from a fiscal standpoint. Purely auto-oriented places are the opposite. They generally cost many multiples more to the public balance sheet than what they produce in revenue. I hear people say uh, strong towns is about density. And and like no, we're not about density. We never like advocate for density. We are for productivity, but you can have high productivity with a very uh, diffuse land use. You just can't do it with paved roads and sewer and water and all this stuff. Well, people say you know, Strong towns it is about ADUs and incremental housing, and it's like yeah, yeah, we we're, we are we are for that, but we are for that because. We need a lot more housing in our neighborhoods to make them productive. At the end of the day, we look out and we see a development pattern post-World War II that was designed to do one thing. It was designed to grow. We created a development pattern, a brand new experimental way of building that was designed to keep us out of the Great Depression. At the end of World War II, when it looked like demobilizing these troops and shutting down these industries and ending this war was going to put us right back into depression, we said, nope, we are going to create an economy that grows and grows and grows. And we are going to do it based on pumping money into cities to help them grow in this way, essentially pioneered by cities like Detroit. Grow, 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 grow. The one thing about growth or being focused on, another way to put it in an economic standpoint is being focused on transactions, is that you lose the whole conversation about productivity. Is this a good investment? Does this make sense? Are we getting enough return for our dollar to actually sustain this investment over time? This is why I pull my hair out and like yell into the ether when you know, respected people like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman and other economists say things that are patently absurd. Like, you know, we just need to spend more on infrastructure. We just need to get out and build more stuff because it has such a high multiplier. Yes, it has a high multiplier, the first life cycle, but then you turn it over to a city, maintain, and it just becomes this financial millstone around their neck. We need to update this business model. And updating the business model begins with getting rid of this antiquated, overly simplistic notion of what a local government is. Cities are for doing things that nobody can do. Cities are there to take the loss. Cities shouldn't care about return on investment. It's not our job. All we should care about is delivering services that people want. This is absurd. Absurd. Your job at City Hall is to prudently run your city, to make sure that you are running at a profit, not just today, not just tomorrow, but decades and decades into the future. That when you make a promise, when you take on a liability, that you are doing that in a way that is responsible to future generations. Because right now, the insolvencies that you're dealing with, the struggles you're dealing with it, are direct result of the fact that for decades we have not done that. We have to get our fiscal house in order. We have to start asking a different set of questions about how we grow and how we develop. And we've got to do it from the bottom up. At Strong Towns, we're not only working on the Community Action Lab, one of our priority campaigns is about transparent local accounting. And we are working internally on some really big things In transparent local accounting, I've gotten a little pushback about our use of the word transparent as if governments are trying to hide things. And really, at the end of the day, I don't think governments are trying to hide things as much as they are, uh, you know, captured by a system that just produces confusing accounting, accounting that just inherently lacks transparency. We've got some plans coming to change that and change that at scale. So stay tuned for that. That will be coming. And if you're interested in the Community Action Lab program, strongtowns.org-Cal, C-A-L, Community Action Lab, C-A-L. You can go to strongtowns.org slash C-A-L and learn more about the program. We are right now at this very moment soliciting applications for 2024. Everything you need to know is there on the website, including a, a, a big briefing that I did last month. This is going to be really competitive. There's a lot of places that apply for this. We're only able to take four or five for next year. We're anticipating quite a few more than that. So if you are interested, uh, go to the website, get signed up. Grace Waitley from our office will contact you. She's going to have a conversation with you, like a preliminary screening. Then we're going to have a larger conversation with you and we're going to work you through this process. We're trying to find five places that want the life coach, not the intervention, want the life coach. We want to change. We're moving down this road. We want to do things differently. Come and help us. We are ready to help you. And by helping you uh, use your success as a model for others to learn from. So if that sounds like you, if that feels like you, strongtowns.org slash Cal, C-A-L, and uh, we'll talk. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for being my, you know, my therapist. <laughs> I hope I didn't unload too much on you this time. I feel a lot better having done it. And you know what? It's only 1230 at night. I'm going to go home and go to bed. You take care and we'll talk again soon. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. What? Yes. Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Morone, this has been fascinating. Who made it city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.